Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Formula for Success, our weekly dive into the world of Formula One and beyond. With me, David Colthard, and the one and only Eddie Jordan. DC, I've never spoken to you as often as I am at the moment. I'm at a loss as to how this is going to continue. And you're also being quite nice to me as well, which frankly I'm enjoying after decades of abuse. Oh, that will change. Have no fear. That will change. All right. To our listeners, remember you can email us at ffs at whisper.tv. I'm getting much better at that. Tongue twister. And send in your thoughts via the hashtag formula for success. What you want to know from the two of us and who you'd like to see join the show as a guest during the season. Regular listeners will know that each week, Eddie, you tell us a story about one of your famous pals and ask them to get in touch with the show. Last week, it was about Roy Keane being a very polite guest at a Grand Prix. And I believe we've had a message from the great man now. Hi, EJ. Remember it well. Let's see what the M4 unfolds this season. Hope this is easy up to cope with you. Catch up soon. Cheers. Bye. So, Eddie, the next challenge will be, can you cast your net a little bit further than Ireland? Well, that's difficult. However, on this occasion, I've managed to go through my little book. This is a person who is not in motor racing. And this person was a friend. Believe it or not, his wife and my wife were friends. And that's how we became friends. But once upon a time, I desperately needed to test a car at Silverstone because we needed to run a driver who had never run in Formula One before and we were going to run him at a race. And this was Wednesday, so I had to give him at least see where the the pedals were, where the seat was and all of the usual things that you do for a, a test. But I couldn't get onto Silverstone because it had been booked by somebody. And I said, who the hell can that be? But they wouldn't tell me who it was and that was the way they operated. So I jumped in the car, drove over to Silverstone to find none other than six times major winner Nick Faldo in his 956 Porsche which he couldn't insure for the road, so he had hired a track for the day. I said to him, Nick, Nick, I think we might have to come to some sort of a compromise here on a little bit of a deal. What if you would do me a massive, massive favour? When you're not running the car, could we run? And when we're, near, we're not running, you could run. And after a little bit of an argy-bargy, he struck a deal with me, which I'll tell you about in a second, uh, and that's what happened. So uh, we tested a driver who had never driven Formula 1 before, Nick was there, and at the end of the day, the deal was that, for those who don't know Nick, he's about six foot four. He is a giant of a man, uh, six times major winner, of which three of them was the British Open and three was the, the, the Masters, which is coming up shortly, so it's very appropriate. Anyway, Nick, when he tried to get in the car, 
couldn't. And uh, as you could expect, because these cars are tiny things, so we had to squeeze them in sideways. The only problem was we couldn't actually get the steering wheel on. Uh, and that was a major job. If anything had happened, I'd have been up for manslaughter. This was suicidal. It should never have happened. Anyway, he wanted to drive the car at all costs. And he did drive the car. And um, he would probably tell us that how well he drove it, but we know different. But anyway, that's Nick. He's an absolute champion. And it was only about 10 years later, he rang me up. He said, look, EJ, um, I, I, I just need to clear up something. Could you, could you tell me, was the person that was in that car of yours that day, somebody's told me that was Michael Schumacher's first ever time in a Formula One car. And that is a true story. It was Michael Schumacher's first time. Nick Faldo gave him the laps on the track. Uh, we gave Nick the car to drive around. Everyone went home happy. And in particular, Nick Faldo tells everybody because he's gloating on the fact that he actually tested the same car as the great Michael Schumacher. But one thing is for sure, Nick Faldo, he is a bigger petrol head than most people that I've ever in my life come across. And uh, he's a great addition. Of course, he, he brought golf to a new level in Europe, but particularly in the UK. And um, a legend of a man. And uh, I see and hear him so regularly on the TV. He's actually on TV more often than DC. So that takes some doing. Uh, but uh, Nick Faldo, let's hope we hear from him very soon. Yeah, that is a great story. And actually, one that I would definitely love to explore with you. Uh, at some point, maybe in a future podcast where we really just delve into that and the fascinating story of the debut of uh, Michael Schumacher. And you've just given us a little teaser there, a very unusual way to test ahead of his first Grand Prix. But moving on, we have a little segment here where we like to reach out to our listeners and get them to ask some questions. And I'm not really sure uh, why uh, the producer decided to allow this one to sneak through, but I'm going to read it, dutiful as I am. And this is from... Clarkey, 1948, I assume he was born in 1948, via Twitter. And he's asked, has David had some work done? Botox, perhaps? My wife wants to know, I couldn't give the proverbial. So Clarkey, 1948, his wife would like to know, I am au natural. I did dye my hair for many years, but... Uh, Hello? What you see now... Hello? Uh, yeah, can you hear me, EJ? Hello? Uh, can you hear me? I'm losing my hearing here. There's something wrong with the broadcast. Yeah. Uh, hello? <laughs> what you see is what you get. So uh, moving on. I think you should. To Daniel Brazil, 20, also via Twitter. It's, uh, Eddie, do you think Lawrence Stroll would ever get rid of his son if he doesn't prove to have what it takes to drive in a top team? Well, before you answer, I think he has more than proven he's got what it takes to drive in a top team. He's a, you know, karting champion, Formula 3 champion. But the wider question is, if he is not the top point scorer within the team, uh, and Alonso, and it's a big, you know, big if, but if Alonso basically made him look like a number two this year, could his father drop him from the team? I'd hope not. And the reason I say that is because I was critical of Lance at the very beginning. I know Paul Edwards, who ran all his program in karting and in the junior formulas. And uh, I, I valued his, and you, you would know Paul from your Williams days. Now, um, Paul has a good eye for real, real talent. And he tells me that deep down, this guy is the real deal and he can get the job done. The fact that his father owns the team, the, father, the fact that his father is minted, 
really shouldn't play a part. We're very skeptical about things like that. We're always looking for the purest of the pure. And uh, everybody comes from different aspects of different life. I know where I came from. I have a good idea where you came from, David. And, um, you know, it is not Lance's problem that he was brought up in a family that had been mega successful in other aspects of life, particularly, you know, the Tommy Hilfiger's, the, the cores, the, the, everything, you know, you think about where they made huge amounts of money. Now, as far as I'm concerned, uh, I, I think Lance Stroll has more than done enough to stay in the position that he's in. And if the car is as good as what he is, do not be surprised when his foot comes back to normality and his, and his wrist. But I have to say, I'm super critical of the team that they allowed him on a, a, a on a bike such like that. Whereas in the contract, it's no different to skiing. My drivers were never allowed to ski, and as a result, mountain biking and racing and stuff like that is just verboten. What? Why would you? Why would you put at risk everything that every engineer, driver, mechanic, everyone inside the team? They've given their life for the last six months to make this car perfect. And then you allow the driver go off and do something like that. So I think that was a mistake and I have to blame the team to some degree. But the answer to your Twitter friend, DC, and that is that I think Lance Stroll has done more than enough to be where he is. Do I think he's the caliber of, uh, of Alonso? Possibly not now, but he may be shortly. And look, if he's a clever boy, and I'm certain he's a clever boy, he will learn so much from Fernando. And my guess to him, if I was his boss, I'd say, look, right now, he may be quicker than you. Right now, I want you to learn every single thing. I want you to, to mirror image his, his demeanor, his style, his, you know, I am sure there's a way that Fernando talks to his engineer that not many other drivers do. So I think he, he's able to get a better setup out of the car and you've got to learn that, Lance. And I think that's what he will do. Yeah, yeah, well, you've got the perfect insight to when your teammate's fast, in the case of uh, Fernando Alonso, there's no doubt, two-time world champion, you've got all the data. You see how he applies the power, how he applies the brake, how he does the steering. So it's the ultimate spy in the cab, and it really does answer a lot of your questions when it comes to how does he do it. Well, the data doesn't lie. For this episode, what I'd like to do is talk about teammates, and we're kind of teammates, but you know we've known each other for a very long time. I vaguely remember first meeting you when I was a young Formula 3 driver and I came round to your, your Silverstone setup as it was that time. I was actually really there more to, to meet with your lawyer, I think he was, uh, Fred Rogers, about the opportunity to sort of get on this, you know, Eddie Jordan talent school or was it just take money off young drivers school? And uh, Exactly that. <laughs> thankfully, thankfully we, we, we didn't manage to come to an agreement. Otherwise, we probably wouldn't be talking to each other right now. But, you know, you were a mover and shaker. I don't know if you ever remember meeting me back then, but you certainly were, were one of those entrepreneurial ex-race drivers, a little bit like Christian Horner, I guess. He was a race driver turned, well, you, you owned the team. He, he's uh, obviously uh, working for Red Bull. But do, do you remember those those early days meeting me or many of the young drivers that came through your talent school? I'm not sure this is massively complimentary, but to my knowledge, you always steered well away from us. Um, certainly in Formula One, I think the only time you ever came in all of those years to our garage was for a pee. And uh, you came off the grid and you hadn't got the balls to go down to your own garage. You came to ours instead. And that's, that's your first and only <laughs> time to come to us. Uh, but I have to say, 
I want to thank you because you were very clever. Our first win in Spa was down to you because you took off Michael Schumacher. He came after you in a fury. Uh, he crashed into me. But you know what I love about you, DC? You were very wise. You kept your helmet on because you knew you were going to get a punch. And um, he tried <laughs> desperately only for Todd to pull him away. But God, you could see in his face, you know, he had a fury, didn't he? He, he just had another button that could let go. Michael Schumacher wasn't a soft touch. He was hardcore and he was not happy. But then he took it out on me afterwards, blaming me for not letting Ralph pass Damon. And he told me that he was going to take Ralph away. And the story goes, which is an absolutely true story. I said, look, Michael, don't get too excited. There's a contract there. There's a buyout clause. Pay me two quid. You can take Ralph anywhere you like after you've done that. And that's what happened. And that's how Ralph wound up in Williams. Now, getting back onto teammates, uh, I've always found that it's a misnomer, isn't it, a teammate? He's not your mate. If you win, your teammate loses. If your teammate wins, you lose. So their success is your failure and vice versa. So you need to work with your teammate, clearly. Easier if you get along with your teammate. But in the end, you know, it's a very weird dynamic. You're sitting across the desk from your teammate who's got his engineers that are all working to beat you and you're doing exactly the same. So it's a fairly intense environment. Now, I had an unusual situation where my nine years at McLaren, I had seven years with Mika and two years with Kimi. So I only had finished teammates there, but that was topped and tailed with a, you know, a year with Damon Hill at Williams and then a few different drivers at Red Bull, uh, Tony Luzzi, Christian Klein, Robert Dombos, Mark Weber for the last two years. And Mark went on, obviously, to partner with Sebastian Vettel and, and, and came very close to win the World Championship. So, I, you know, I had some pretty good teammates. And actually, you become, I would say, good friends with those guys afterwards because you've learned a lot about their personality on the journey. What was the dynamic you were looking for when you, as a team owner, were employing drivers? Was it purely about how much money they could bring to Jordan Grand Prix? Or was it primarily can I get the two fastest guys in this car and it doesn't matter if they don't get along with each other? Well, first of all, I think you slightly do me an injustice. You think that everything was motivated by money uh, at Jordan Grand Prix because actually it was, uh, because that's what <laughs> needed to happen to survive. And survival was by far the best. But anyway, um, in the team, some people got on. I remember Fisichella and Ralph Schumacher I was so furious. I lost a head. We talked about, you know, the, the hairbrush moment for, for Alex Ferguson. God, I went crazy when those two uh, took each other out when we were looking like first and second in Argentina. But then I got my payback, which you helped me to, in Spa. So what goes round comes round. Um, Damon Hill and Ralph, were they the greatest of friends? Not really. When you hear the talk back and the playback of when the two of them were fighting to see who would win that race in Spa, well, you can clearly understand that there's no love lost there. But, you know, they probably are good friends now. For sure, Irvine and I, I hated everything about him. He was an absolute mess to work with because you couldn't control him. And uh, I need to be sure as a team boss that there was certain elements that could put a team together that would make it happen. He was there with Rubens, but Rubens was very, very smart and very quick. And Rubens could often now qualify him and race against him and did so on a continual basis. So it's nice to see what the dynamic is. But when you're the team boss and you're sitting back, 
it's a very different thing when you're the player involved. When, you, for example, when you were with Hakkinen or somebody like that, you can imagine what was going on there. But, you know, they are two different things. I'm probably closer to Irvine now than I've ever, certainly ever been in my entire life. In fact, I find him hilarious. I'm going to try and see, can we get Irvine on here? Because he, he will keep us all amused for about the next couple of weeks. Because anyway, he's a lunatic, as we well know. So uh, I have some lovely stories about him, some that he would like me to, to, to relay others that he will want me to totally forget and put a gagging order on me but um, I don't think gagging orders are in place with me anymore those things are a thing of the past I never really experienced having anyone other than the the fastest teammate that um, in the case of Williams and McLaren that they could afford but I do think at Red Bull there was a couple of the drivers there that were were coming with money They they were all you know, perfectly talented, but let's say that this whole debate over pay drivers versus, you know, putting in the car who who you think is best. Did you ever literally just take the money because you you to keep the team alive, you had to put someone in the car? And are you prepared to name check them? When Gasho went to jail that time, Gasho was a cool guy. He thought he walked on water, and um, he had a, an altercation with a taxi driver in London. The judge didn't like it, and he sent him down for eighteen months, which I thought was ridiculously harsh, but. I'm not the law. Anyway, he went to jail. I had to find a driver. So there was a choice. An unknown guy that I'd only seen in Formula 3, but I had a guy, Gerd Kramer from Mercedes, who was always very well known to all of the teams. Um, he was pushing this particular driver very hard. I wanted to put Stefan Johansson in the car, and Stefan was happy to do it. He was going to do it for free. But then out of the blue, surprise, surprise, Mercedes covertly did a deal with uh, Sauber, and Sauber paid me uh, the money for the number of races that Schumacher was down to do. So Schumacher, and that's the story that I was telling you about uh, the Nick Faldo situation, how he happened to drive that car. And that's where he did his first ever drive in a Formula One car. Went to Spa, he was found. Um, Bernie came to me and Bernie said, listen, Jordan, you're going out of business. I can't possibly see how you're going to survive. Take the money, go. Just take as much as you can off the table. And I took the money off the table from Mercedes for for Schumacher. I took the money from Flavio, which was a delight. I have to say, taking money from Flavio is not an easy task, let me tell you. So to actually succeed in that score, is you need certain back-clapping. It was as it was. But Michael Schumacher, let it be known, he paid. And the money was paid for him. So I think it's a wrong assertion to say, David, that all drivers are paid drivers. And I know you guys who didn't pay, and you kind of look down your nose at those who do. And I think you're wrong to do that. And I would like you, on air, to take back what you've just said. Because some of the drivers we've experienced, and some of the great drivers, have been paid drivers at one stage. Okay, I take it back, because it reminds me that uh, the great late Ayrton Senna was also a pay, pay driver, as in he paid for his seat at Tolman, uh, as was the case with Fernando Alonso, as has been the case with many of the, the, as we now know, the great champions of Formula One. I guess I was a bit more focused on who was the person that, you know, literally you didn't expect any level of performance, um, but you just needed the money from them. And you're right, you know, there was a general, the word pay driver infers somebody of less ability to be able to get you points. And people said, it's a, it's a trade-off. You get the money and you don't get the points, or you, you, you get no money and you may get the points. But, you know, there's no such point as being a bankrupt hero. And I didn't fancy being a bankrupt hero. So on any occasion I had, yes, I took the money.
EJ, in uh, last week's episode, you were sort of calling out those that have gone through the Paul Stewart racing, the Jackie Stewart school of motoring. And you're saying we're all a bit soft and if we were a bit harder, then you could have made me a champion. Well, I've got an old buddy, uh, someone that you know, because uh, you, you actually did a negotiation with him and he's one of the few to have come out ahead in that negotiation. And it wasn't over a motor racing drive. It was actually over your old house in Oxfordshire. Oh, no. It's the one and only IndyCar champion, all-round good guy, and the first teammate I ever had. It's Jill de Ferran. Come on, Jill. I want to hear your version of this story because uh, I won't preempt. Let's hear what you have to say. Hi, Eddie. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very pleased to see you, by the way, but you continually choose bad company. Can't imagine where you're going <laughs> after this. Uh, I know, I know. So the, the version of the story is I just uh, was moving back to England. I was struggling to find a, a place to live. Eddie was super nice to me. Never. And he sold me his house and it was the best thing ever. So thank you. You're a very kind man. A lot of people would disagree with that statement. But nevertheless, um, it is... They don't know you that well. <laughs> <laughs> the reality is you are the only person still living that's actually had my <laughs> pants down. Do you know that? You kill me. It's an honor. You, you got me on a very bad day. I, I'm so embarrassed ever since. And that's why I love you so much, because you had the, the nuts to actually pull it off. Eddie, I think it was probably the only time I did a good deal in my entire life. So uh, you, you're good there. Because I've yeah. got to stop you on that, because we've got to stop being nice to each other. Uh, I want to I wanna lash into you a little bit. So I'm going to say, look, you did all those Formula 3 and... Uh, you spent a lifetime with Jackie Stewart and um, we all adore Jackie, we all adore Paul. But do you think you left something on the table? Do you, you feel, because if ever I was to pick out two unbelievably nice guys, I'd say it's you and DC, but you know, yeah. nice guys don't win championships, although you did in America, but I'm just saying that you, you, left, you left Europe to go off and find your fame and fortune elsewhere. And I'm just thinking, yeah. did you have in your mind a winning culture? Did you really feel that you could crack it in Formula One? And why did you go to the States? Uh, it may sound really arrogant, but I had no question. I knew exactly what I needed to do inside the car. I, and I never had any question. And uh, for me, Eddie, it was a, a matter of opportunities. You know, as, as one door closes, another door opens. And I have always lived like that, you know, whatever opportunities in front of me, I grab with uh, both of my hands and all of my heart and, and try to do the, the best I can. Does that include the doors of my house? <laughs> <laughs> if you don't think you can win, there's no point in racing. That's my, as a driver, that's how I, I thought about it. You know, these days, you know, sometimes people, yeah, I'm going to sound super arrogant now, but uh, People ask me, well, you know, why don't you do something for fun and everything? Because racing for me was always very serious. You know, I could either perform at the top and that requires a huge amount of commitment or not. And, um, and I retired at, at 35 because I wasn't ready to put that commitment anymore. My mind was elsewhere and, and I can't really complain about my career. I, I really enjoyed every step of it. 
I love you being on here. I mean, DC has completely surprised me. We mentioned your name last week, and uh, you you crop up like this. And I uh, don't know how he got his magic wand to do this, but you're a hugely welcome part of the program. And uh, Jill, I love seeing you. Absolutely a real pleasure. Same here, Eddie. Same here. Thank you. Really appreciate you passing by. And you are showing him some respect, TJ. Friends of yours, DC, are always far classier than you yourself. So, uh, of course, I would naturally have the respect uh, that he warrants. He, he, look, he was fantastic. Can you imagine going to Indianapolis, winning in Indy? Anyone who's been there to see 500,000 people queuing up for days on end to see the Indy 5. It's an absolute classic race. And, and we mustn't forget that Alonso forgave a, a, a Grand Prix to go and challenge for there. So, you know, it, it's something that great people... People want to do alongside Le Mans and uh, win the Formula One World Championship. And uh, the doors open correctly for him because he's a champion there. Now, Eddie, I had a little whisper that you weren't particularly happy with our uh, theme music. And because uh, you're a passionate musician, you, you, you know, play the drums, you've got your own band. Uh, you, you rattle the spoons at every opportunity you have. So I think I'm going to have to challenge you to see if you can come up with something a bit more EJ-like, something that you know really will set formula for, sorry, the formula for success. God, it's so difficult to say that sometimes, isn't it? Um, something that will set us apart. So will you accept that challenge? Music is so important to any program. We only have to think about when we were on the BBC for so long and, you know, that little piece from Chains. Uh, I know it's kind of different now because rights holders and various things, you've got to be very careful about the music. So for me, I'd be very happy with a Palomine. We can put it together. We put down some different layers of music on it. Uh, I'll bear in mind what you're saying. So maybe something a little bit... We won't leave it too open so as we don't give people a, a perception of what it's likely to be. But actually... I would love to do that. And um, the music is, is probably one of the most important things in my life because it just gives me a sense of relief. So, yeah, the challenge is accepted. And um, I just hope you can give me a week or so to try and see what I can produce for you. Well, appreciate that, EJ. Uh, that's about it for this week. Coming up uh, this weekend, we're in Saudi Arabia. Last year, Max was victorious ahead of Charles Leclerc. What are we expecting this weekend, EJ? We saw what happened. I think Charles was very unlucky, by the way, in, in, in Bahrain. I thought he was doing a nice job. He kept saying to his team that he had a strategy in mind as regard to tyres. I, I was impressed with Charles. I thought he did a good job. Could he have beaten Perez for, for the second place? Mm, I don't want to go into that. We'll have to wait and see. He didn't, uh, and that was the problem. But I was very saddened to see the car fail. I just hope with Ferrari, it's not going to be the same old carry-on again. I think Ferrari could surprise us. And honestly, we probably need it. We need a Ferrari at the front of the qualifying, and we need a Ferrari to fight for race wins. But just something in passing as the races are going by. How nice was it, particularly in Bahrain, to see all the cars get around the first corner, all with good speed. And the only slight kerfuffle was perhaps teammates. We, we know what happened uh, at the Aston Martin situation. Uh, I think Alonso was a bit critical, but who knows? Let's hope there'll be lots of incidents going forward, but let's hope we have nice, clean racing. It's always nice to see that. Eddie, look, thank you very much for your time. And thank you, dear listener. And remember, you can get in touch with us by emailing ff 
s at whisper.tv. And you can also subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any of the action. And don't forget, tell your friends. See you next week.